the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey, and today I am joined by not one, but two special guest hosts. Nadia is in Japan, so in lieu of having her on the show, I decided to have one Mike Williams. Hello, hello, you fine people. And also Katie McCarthy, who hasn't been on the show in a while. I know, it's been a long time. I don't remember last time I was on the show. Uh, it was probably for some RPG review I did in the past, but I don't remember which one. But uh, Katie and Mike are usually doing the US Gamer Podcast, which we run on Wednesdays. So if you enjoy this podcast, you should go listen to them on that show. And even if you don't enjoy this podcast, you should go and listen to them on that show because either way, I don't care. Just go listen to them. It's fun. <laughs> All right. So the main topic of the day that we're going to be talking about a little later, something that I've been wanting to kind of touch upon for a while. Uh, RPGs are known for having multiple endings. Um, And this is in the case of some of the most famous Japanese made RPGs and some of the most famous uh, RPGs uh, that have been made on the PC and such. So we'll be talking a lot about the good and the bad and what games kind of pull them off and such like as that but the first thing we're going to do is so i got to see nino kuni 2 yesterday or the not yesterday the other day and uh it's better than i thought yeah i've been worried about it because your early impressions from other preview events you've gone to were not positive and that worried me because i really love the first game and the fact they're like change like the the one thing that everyone complained about the first game was the combat system but i liked it maybe i'm just like too lenient on like pokemon like systems because it was very similar to pokemon but more like action oriented and this one when i heard they're like getting rid of that whole system and just doing something different i was like oh i, I kind of like that system but it seemed to be that have the opposite effect on all people some were like maybe it'll be good this time so <laughs> but I've, i haven't gotten hands-on with it all so i have no idea how it seems but i read your thing and it seems more interesting than i had initially thought so now i'm like more optimistic, but still, like, worried, I guess, about it. <laughs> Did, so, we have mostly had Nino Kuni naysayers on this podcast. So, as a Nino Kuni, like, hardcore fan, I'm actually really curious, what about that game really grabbed you? Uh, it was, like, kind of, like, everything about it. Like, the art direction is, like, really strong, obviously, it being, like, in part with Studio Ghibli. And I really loved how grounded the story was. Like, so many JRPGs are just about saving the world. And this is about a kid who's, like, on a quest to, like, maybe resurrect his mom. Because his mom dies at the beginning of the game. And he basically gets pulled into this alternate, like, parallel world where everyone has, like, a matching twin person or whatever. Uh, I don't know the specifics. But his whole goal is, like, I'm going to find the twin to my mom, quote unquote, and then, like, she'll help me resurrect my mom uh and it's like this it's like sad and like in this way because it's like wow this poor kid like he just wants his mom back and he's just going to these like crazy lengths to do so and i don't know the characters are in it are all very endearing and i feel like the towns you visit are all super memorable which is always been my favorite part of any jrpg is like if it feel like 
when a good JRPG, I feel like, should feel like a big journey, like you're going across the world and everything, and all the towns should feel really unique. And I feel like Nino Kuni really nails that aspect of it, like with the music and the art design. And I don't know, I just think overall, it really resonated with me in a way that JRPGs at that time, like, hadn't for a long-ass time. Like, I was still just playing PS2-era RPGs, because I was like, eh, there's no good ones now. Uh, but, I don't know, like, that, that game just, like, hit all the right notes for me. I totally understand the criticisms people have, like, the overworld isn't great, the combat's not, like, the best thing in the world. But, I mean, once you get a dragon, like, traveling around's, like, pretty easy. But, I don't know, like, just, it... I, I'm a sucker for, like, really excellent art direction, and that's pretty much the biggest perk of that game, so... Mm. Uh, Man, that was one of the most beautiful games I had ever seen when yeah. it came out. It's hard to believe that it came out something, I believe, like... No, it came out, like, seven years ago at this yeah. point, which is actually pretty insane. it still looks really good, like... Wait, Nino Kuni? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the original Nino Kuni came out in November 2011. Yeah, but we didn't get it for another, like, two, three years, right? No, it came out here in November 2011. Yeah. Uh. I I remember that when it came out, everybody was really rooting for it because we hadn't had a big budget JRPG on an HD console like much at all at that time. And going kind of with that old school JRPG feeling on like the PS3 was a pretty novel thing. And so people got pretty mad when uh, Bob did the review for 1UP and he panned it. <laughs> Uh, but Nino Kuni, my main memory of Nino Kuni is that the three, the DS version was a total flop oh, in I Japan. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. Everybody forgets about the DS version, which came out first, and they included this book, this hardcover book with all of these puzzle solutions. That was kind of like an old school PC way of approaching piracy. And what they did was you had to go into the book for the puzzle solutions, right? Well, I mean, the game was a flop, so they had all this extra inventory on these books because, of course, Level 5 assumed DS plus Studio Ghibli plus Level 5 plus these graphics, like, easy win, right? Nope, not at all. So they had all this extra inventory, so they made those books the pre-order bonus <laughs> for Nino Kuni uh, on the PS3. And I still got one in my bookshelf. <laughs> It's just like, it's totally random. It's just, oh, look at this cool book. Um, and also you get uh, the little character with the lantern on its nose. Yeah, I, I got that character off eBay because I didn't pre-order it. Mm. Um, so I, but I have that little, dri- I think Drippy is that guy's name. Yeah, because so I have that game it. Has a, that game has a really good dub. Like, it does not get credit for how good that dub is. Like, Drippy has like this very strong, like, Scottish accent. And it's amazing. Uh, and then when you go back and listen to the Japanese voice language track, you can tell it's, like, a very different dialect, so they really, like, captured it well for the Western version, uh, but yeah, and also, like, when it, I feel like good dubs are, like, relatively rare, I don't, like, at least in my, maybe I'm too picky, uh, but Nino Kuni has, like, a pretty excellent dub. Excellent. Well, I was gonna say that I think you might end up liking Nino Kuni too, uh, Katie, because... Yeah. I think it I still has some pretty. I think it still has some pretty strong art direction overall, and I, like I was kind of saying, like, well, it does seem to borrow from Dragon Quest VIII, mm-hmm. and there were there were some other things that I was kind of going, wow, man, it feels a little derivative mm-hmm. at times, but 
in other ways, when you're actually seeing it in motion, it can be really quite gorgeous, especially yeah. in chapter three, you're in this town uh, where you're, where everything is decided by the roll of a dice. Everything is about gambling and it has this beautiful kind of uh, old Chinese aesthetic to it that just uh, really pops off the screen, I, I think. I think the only thing that I really hate about the art direction is their decision to go with this really cutesy, chibi look on the overworld. It really clashes. I, I'm not a fan of what they decide to do with that. It, it just does not work, unfortunately. I think the one, my biggest worry is because the original is so rooted in like the fact that this is like a modern day boy that's like have kind of pulled into this other world. And from what I've seen of two, it doesn't seem like that's really an element at all. And like I feel like that was like the big one of the big draws is like you can kind of go to the real world, which is like this very mechanic, like old school Americana town. Uh, so I'm interested to see if it ever goes in that direction at all. It doesn't seem like it is. It seems like a pretty like typical like fantasy. Or yeah, no, he's a he's a cat boy. So yeah, it's it's, it's gonna like, always take place in in the main. It area. seems like a yeah. It's like he has ears <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a tail. Yeah, and like. I don't know. I like his haircut. Like, he kind of looks like Howl from Howl's Moving Castle a little bit, but like a smaller version mm. with cat ears. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm really interested in that game. Uh, like, they've, like, level five, like, has gone to pains to say this isn't Ghibli related, but like, there's a lot of people still that worked on the first game from, like, the Ghibli side that are working on this game. Like, Joe Hosaishi's still doing the score, which is great because I think the score is one of the best things about Nino Kuni. So. If anything, I just get a new Joe Hosaishi score out of it, and that's great. <laughs> like that's, I'll look forward to that. It, uh, yeah, no, the the score is already really good. Um, they actually had it playing on loop at the actual event, and they were playing the same song on loops, so oh, that yeah, started to get much. a little, yeah, a little much. Yeah, it got to get started to get a a little distracting after a while, <laughs> and b like. I had my headphones on, so I'm trying to listen to the music from the actual game. But it's like and the yeah. and the music on the lot on the, the the speakers were also playing, so it was kind of mixing in with it. Note to any PR people who might be listening to this: uh, maybe don't have the music playing all the time. I know it sets the mood and everything, but if you got the headphones on, you're trying to listen to the actual game. It gets distracting after a while. <laughs> I, I was really super down on you know Kuni Two. I thought it was kind of shallow. I didn't. I, I thought that it didn't pop in the same. Same. I thought that it lost a lot of the original Nino Kuni strengths without really fixing any of its weaknesses. Uh, but after, but I think the cure for that was ultimately getting a chance to play it for several hours. Actually, I went through chapter two, chapter three, and into chapter four, and getting a chance to get a feel for the rhythm of the exploration and a rhythm for the story and the rhythm of the battle system made me feel a lot more, I, I guess I want to say just like going, okay, this game's fun. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm into this. I, I'm rolling with it. It has a very storybook, fairy tale, almost childish view of the story. You have lots of bad guys tearfully confessing their sins and that oh, kind of yeah. thing after you defeat them. Things like that, and and that's that's totally fine, right? Uh, it, it feels like a throwback in that regard, and I, I feel like I mentioned Dragon Quest already. Level five, of course, worked on Dragon Quest in the past. I feel like they're kind of trying to reach out 
to that fandom and be like, hey, if you like Dragon Quest super whimsical feel, come on over here to this other game. Uh, and the battle system is deeper and more enjoyable than I initially thought. The The fact that the Higgledies have these passive abilities and these active abilities and uh, there's a little bit of strategy in activating them and which ones that you choose. Uh, the fact that you can equip up to three weapons and they all have different elements which uh, you can kind of min-max to if you're going up against a particular boss. And what, even when you're fighting the bosses, for example, you'll get these fire higgledies that will create a fire shield when it's attacking you. So the boss fights are a little bit different. Yeah, so I came out of it going, you know, like, th- I don't think this is going to set the world on fire or anything. I don't know if it's going to be on our top 20 list at the end of the year, but it certainly made me feel like, it was a lot better than the kind of mediocrity that I was expecting. So see, now I'm actually looking forward to playing see, it. See, that's why year. you have to open your heart, especially <laughs> at the E3 previews, because they're so quick. So you got to like fill in, fill in the rest of what's there with your heart right here. Yeah, that was, that was a lot of the problem. I, I've said in the past, RPGs do not show well at events. And a lot of that is to do with... No, they don't. I mean, the previous events would be you had one boss fight and then you had one brief kind of walk through a dungeon and it did not sh- give you any feel whatsoever of what the actual game was yeah, like. like. the scope of the world right. or anything. Which I like it's the most important yeah. part of an RPG. Yeah, no, I can I can agree with that. Even games that I knew about because the last time I played an RPG was ah, PAX East. It was uh, Final Fantasy XII The Zodiac Age. And even in a game I knew, like, it that time that I had, which was like an hour, wasn't really like indicative of everything I needed to probably see in the game. Cause it was like a grinding area. I couldn't like pull up any cutscenes because I didn't know where I was in the world at the time. It was, it was a very weird thing. And that's true of a game that I knew already. So a game that you don't have any context for is like even. Like, like it makes even less sense. Uh, Mass Effect was yeah, also so much, like that. Yeah, so much of an RPG is connecting you to a character and making you feel really engaged and invested in that character or that party. So when you shear away that element, it it feels very weird and very disconnected. So even though it wasn't my game per se, at the very least, being able to play it for a while started to get me a much better feel for how the game felt. So if you're listening to this PR folks and you have a big RPG you want to sell people on, let the media and influencers, I guess, come in for like three or four hours and actually play the thing and maybe you'll get some better coverage out of it. All right, Nino Kuni 2 out next month. Another game that's coming out in April and we already talked a little bit about that uh, in the last podcast, but I, I believe since then we post... Uh, we posted Katie's Yakuza 6 localization piece, um, which I just wanted to highlight on here. Uh, Katie, you played Yakuza 0. You are not a big fan of the localization of that game. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit how the localization of Yakuza 6 is going to be better this time around? Yeah, I mean, I didn't hate the localization 0. It's just every now and then there would be these, like, phrases, like... there's There are multiple instances where Majima would say, cool story, bro. And it, like, would take me out of it because it's so memey, you know? It's like, I don't... I don't need that in this. Uh, this takes place in, like, the 80s. Like, this just doesn't fit the time period. And there are just, like, a few little instances of that that are just kind of, like, 
Man, the rest of this localization's great, and it's really funny, and they really, like, translate the eccentricities of, like, Japan well. But then they're just, like, little, like, in-jokes that felt like were slitted, and it was, it was very distracting. Uh, but yeah, I've played, like, a few hours of Yakuza 6 so far. It, like, literally the second cutscene's, like, an hour long. So, or, like, almost an hour long. You're, I literally ate a whole meal just watching the opening of that game. Uh, but... I can yeah, agree with it, that. I can agree with that. It's very long. Uh, I think it's a good cutscene. It's entertaining, and it really does a good job of, like, setting things up and letting players who are unfamiliar know, like, just, like, starting off the ending of 5 and just, like, and here's what you need to know. Here's all the characters you probably forgot about, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but it's a... I think it's a pretty strong opening, personally. But I I don't know. Like, already in my experiences of, like, running around Kamurocho, uh and doing a few mini side quests and main story quests, I feel like the localization is overall feels a lot tighter. And the in the loading screens, they added these, like, little contextual things, which are not in the Japanese version, that add... Like, they describe things like, oh... Before people eat, they like bow their heads and say it's a dokimas, which is a like they like they have like a whole explanation for it, and it I don't know it's it's like nice t- added touch, and I think it's it'll make it way more accessible for people that aren't like particularly familiar with like Japanese culture uh, or have played a yakuza game, and they even have like these really in depth like biographies and stuff and i think they even have comics online that they localize to help get players like up to speed before six so i feel like it's just kind of going super above and beyond like more than zero and kiwami had which i think is a really good thing especially since it's like the sixth game in the series technically or in the mainline series uh (coughs) but yeah it's yeah does part of it help, especially with Yakuza 6 versus Yakuza Kiwami, the fact that the game takes place closer to modern times, so there's less of a need to oh, sort yeah. of, uh, like, make sure that it sounds like it came from the 80s? That was the 80s, right? The first one, Kiwami? Yeah, the 80s yeah, was Yakuza Zero. Zero is the 80s. I think Kiwami's, like, 90s? I don't remember. Per- maybe, it might be early 2000s, actually. I'm trying to remember, like, the timeline. Well, Kiwami was the original Yakuza, but it was remade, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And so that will, probably would have taken place in the 2000s, because that's when it came out. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember, like, how old Haruka's in that. She's kind of, like, the thing that I can... I think she's 19 and 6, and that's 20... Mm-hmm. It takes place in 2016. So it'd be... I don't know. I can't remember. Anyway, but I, I can't do math. But, uh, yeah, like, I like Kiwami... That's why we're all writers. Yeah. Uh, Kiwami and Zero are, like, technically, like, era game. Like, they take place in a very particular era. Uh, and then Six, like, deals with, like, Kiryu, like, thrust into modern society after being in prison for a few years. And he's, like, he suddenly has a smartphone. I wish they kind of explained that, but I guess smartphones were available, like, a few years ago. And, like, in 5, he kind of has a smartphone. Uh, but, I don't know, it's, it's, it's definitely... They are, like, more unshackled. Like, they kind of don't have to worry about period-era dialogue, I guess. So that probably helps a lot. Um, but, yeah, and this is their this is the this particular localization team's third Yakuza game they've localized. So they're, like, kind of, like, they ha- they've learned the ropes. They're very confident. They can, like, add all these bonus things that they don't need to, like, think. Like, no, they've, like, learned from their mistakes. Like, the tutorials are a lot breezier. They're not, like, super wordy anymore. So just, like, overall, it seems like a tighter 
better localization, and I'm excited to see more of it. I really like the Yakuza games, and I've been playing them since Yakuza 4, but... <sighs> the, the, the mention of the cutscenes... So in the other podcast, I was talking about how I'm not a huge fan of overly long cutscenes oh, yeah, in games. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> And that's Yakuza to a T. Yeah. And it gets to a point where they're so long, it feels like a totally passive experience, and it starts to drive me a little bit crazy. And so I inevitably never end up finishing it like the actual story because i will be enjoying myself but i will eventually get tired of watching all of the story cutscenes and just need to move on with my life because they're not just story cutscenes; they're like non-interactive cutscenes. yes no no it's, they are completely uninteractive the whole point is that these are famous voice actors from japan because they always get these celebrities to play characters in yakuza and you're basically watching a soap opera <laughs> Yeah, they have a gangster soap opera. This one, I think I, I saw his name in the credits. And I think I've seen pictures of him. I'm like, okay, you are correct. That is him. In this. Yeah, Which I thought Beat cool. Takeshi was in Yakuza Zero for some reason. Anyway, but yeah, no. So uh, something tells me that it'll be the exact same thing with Yakuza Six. I will play like a a bunch of it and be like, this is will, fun. Like, put you off for sure because it's long. Yeah, like, I. I had ordered Postmates and I started playing and there's like a very short thing and then you, it does like a tutorial for how to fight. And then the cutscene after that where like the story really starts was so long and in that time span my Postmates had got had arrived in the middle of the cutscene, had to pause, got my food, and then I was just eating and the cutscene was still going while I was eating and I was like, this is long as hell. <laughs> like shit, I'm eating a whole yep. meal. I, I think Yakuza sort of kind of realizes that what its core gameplay is, which is the beat 'em up and the mini games, don't really have much to do with anything yeah. with story. Like, there's not much you can do there and still get a story across without just having it be like, we're talking, we're talking, now let's punch. Or we're talking and we're talking, let's play some darts. <laughs> so, so let's do karaoke. I mean, yeah. if you think of the karaoke, it's kind of an interactive cutscene. Sometimes the karaoke will take you to like a cutscene or like a silly thing. Yeah, they will. One, yeah, but I mean, that's not really cutscenes. We're like, just this is a silly, imaginative karaoke. I said I always do the karaoke because that's my favorite part of Yakuza. <laughs> it's so fun. It's great. Yeah, uh, yeah, I love the karaoke. I want like a whole game of just maybe I just like really like rhythm games. So maybe I was just. My preference, exactly. You know, <laughs> what were we gonna say, Mike? Uh, yeah, it's just I, I think what they have gameplay-wise is so completely divergent from any like other story thing, and I, I think I feel like they've sort of given up. Like Yakuza Kwame didn't feel like the cutscenes were that long, like maybe like five minutes or so, and I and I think as they've sort of gotten into the series mythology playing Yakuza Six that they've sort of been like, ah, we really can't do anything about this. So we're just going to do the story over here. And when you're not on the story, you can go do whatever you want. We don't really care. Yeah, uh, I, I wonder if the rest of the cutscenes in 6 will be as long. So that, that first one's really the super duper duper long one because it like sets everything up or whatever. But like the cutscenes I've encountered since have been like normal cutscene length, like not too long, not too short. Like they're just kind of like in and out. 
Uh, but I also wouldn't be surprised if there's, like, also very long cutscenes later on, because I feel like Zero had a lot of very long cutscenes. Not quite as long as the opening to Six, but I remember there being, like, quite a few long ones. It's funny because in a couple days will be the 20th anniversary of Xenogears, and I don't know if you guys ever played Xenogears, but that yeah. game, I'm pretty sure, has at least a two-hour cutscene. <laughs> That's great. I, I, where oh, they when they when they finally sit down and explain everything, everything that's going on with the main character, all of the mythology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm pretty sure that the cutscene goes ninety minutes to two hours because I just remember thinking, "Does this ever end? Oh my god, what is going on?" It was. It was the cloud scene from Final Fantasy VII where he's reuniting all the different facets of his personality dialed up to about 100. <laughs> yeah, no, it is pretty bad. And I, I feel like the apocryphal story of that is like they ran out of budget and so they were just like rushing through the rest of the story they yeah. had to tell like in one big-ass cutscene. <laughs> it's very Evangelion in that basically in disc two it was... Ba- it was like you see, uh, I think his name is Saiten, sitting there with a book explaining things, and you see some still shots of what's going on as he's explaining to all the things that have happened, and then, oh, here's a dungeon. Yeah, no, it, w- it was very much like, uh, like, oh, wow, you guys really did have like no money anymore. Like You needed to get this game done. So it comes across as Saiten being like, uh, this is what would have happened in the game if we had more time and money. And yeah, it's it's pretty bad. It, uh, Xenogears is another one of those endings that, like, that whole last disc, just like, ah, I can't call this great, even though the first disc is amazing. I, sh- I sure did put 80 hours into that game. All right, but yeah, proof that it can always get worse. Hey everybody, before we move on, I just wanted to warn you that this next segment has some spoilers uh, for Witcher 3 and Mass Effect 3 and Dragon Age Origins, among others, though those are the main ones, so if you don't want to hear spoilers for those games, consider yourself warned. Okay, let's keep going. Alright, speaking of endings and such, uh, it's time to talk about the main topic of this week's episode of Axe of the Blood God, which is multiple endings in RPGs. And let me tell you the impetus uh, for this topic. And I think it came around kind of organically a couple weeks ago when I was talking to Nadia, and I was talking about the fact that I've been playing Witcher 3, as I may have mentioned here and there, though I've taken a break from Monster Hunter. Um, of late but basically reading up on it i learned that there were multiple endings and that there was a bad ending and i did not want the bad ending because (laughs) i have invested many 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 hours into this game too many hours to get a freaking bad ending and i was just not going to take the chance that i was going to put a put a foot wrong say the wrong thing and all of a sudden, everybody is dead. So, 
So I spoiled myself and read up on the conditions as to what can happen with the various endings to make sure that everything kind of worked out the way that I ultimately wanted it to. Because I was telling my own story. I wanted the story to go the way that I wanted to. And then that got me thinking about multiple endings in other RPGs and how they can be, at times, they can really make the game. And at other times, they can, shall we say, well, be pretty controversial. Uh, See Mass Effect 3, which, believe it or not, that game is five years old now. Which is pretty crazy. Yeah, like Katie's get yeah, this expression on her I face. Guess like so, what? Yeah. Yep, yeah, it came out like in twenty thirteen. Like that was like five years that was a while ago. Because that was yes. like a controversy. Like, controversy and a half. Yeah. Because well, they ruined it. Yeah. Uh, they <laughs> they did a terrible job with that ending. And for all the people who had been invested at that point for six years in the entirety of the trilogy, uh to have such a bad ending was a lot of people took it as a betrayal. Yeah. So my contention with mass effect three has always been that the entire game is the ending that everyone wanted from the very end of that game. Mm -hmm. Like the entire game is that, that let's do a victory lap. Here's all the people that you loved during the rest of the game. And here's what's happening with him. They're going to die. They're going to go on to something better. They're going to, like, the entire game is that ending that people wanted, I think. So, by the time I got to the last cutscene, that last thing, that last choice, I was kind of like, ah, this isn't great, but I've already, like, I already know what happened to all of my characters. I think a lot of people were frustrated because in the original ending, they had it so, like, so many of your con- your choices seemingly didn't matter in the end. Uh, for example, when they were showing the big flashbacks to all the characters from the different games, they didn't even show your love interest in the original cut. Oh, really? And yeah, no, like you're a big oversight because that's like why people play this game seemingly. Yeah. Kotaku had a really pretty good breakdown of everything that was wrong with the original ending at that point. Uh, Also, it was just kind of a really simple decision at the end of the day. So they had been touting it the entire time as, no, your decisions that you've made throughout the course of the entire series are going to all matter in the end. Yeah. But, what it was, but at the end of the day, it was just a, here's a fairly simple decision that is accessible almost no matter what you did. And it's kind of boils down to whether you're a renegade or you are Paragon, but you can choose anything you want. And everything that came in the past everything to do with saving the uh, the Rachni or what you did with the Genophage or whatever, doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, Bioware was like, oh my God, we can't pull all of these threads together into one complete ending, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it just became too big for them. Yeah, no, and even even like you say, you're either Renegade or Paragon, it wasn't even like related to that. Like you could be Renegade and paragon and choose the same ending just because it made sort of logical sense i, I guess we can it, it's not really a spoiler now look guys if you're listening to this and you care yeah, you whatever. should play mass effect 3 uh anyways it's uh, the the i'm i'm putting a spoiler tag at the before this segment so 
Uh. So people are known that yes, we are talking about the endings and we are like revealing things. So be prepared. Yeah. So so the 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 endings essentially boil down to what do you want to do with this ancient robotic race thing uh, at the end? Uh, and it's I, I believe it's uh, let them go, uh, kill them, or join the human race with them, which is the synthesis ending i believe it's called i think that's yes. the one i chose i was just like ah, i mean if oh interesting i was i was just like ah i mean if we don't they're we're all gonna die so i think that was the one i chose the first time <laughs> and then i went back and did it again uh and and killed them all so mm-hmm. but like the 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 endings like are even separate from how you played the game as a paragon paragon or renegade or or, or anything they're they're completely separate it's just like, what do you think is the best ending for these bad guys? Not even really like the rest of the universe or anything. Well, I think some of the problem was if you went renegade, you had kind of you you had a separate ending if you went renegade and it wasn't a great ending like at all. And I I think some of the frustration was that it felt so binary, I think, in that Okay, so my character in Mass Effect started as a renegade in Mass Effect 1 and gradually kind of changed to Paragon. And I don't think that's something that you can actually really do. Like the game does not really allow for that kind of nuance and shades of gray, which I think was a really frustrating aspect of Mass Effect and ultimately why maybe a lot of people felt uh, disappointed by it. Uh, yeah, no, I would agree. Um, I, what I would end up doing is I would play one through all Paragon and then I would turn around and play through the entire game again, all Renegade. So like, it wasn't really a problem for me, but I would, uh, I I could see like going from game to game, like even if you brought over your character, like they don't 100% acknowledge everything that you did in the previous game. So... Like that, that sort of nuance and shift from Paragon to Renegade or Renegade to Paragon really wouldn't come across. You, you'd just be starting over each game, essentially. Yeah, it was pretty unfortunate. One of the few times I can think of where they actually basically retcon the ending a little bit with the director's cut or the extended cut ending <laughs> to try and uh, try to address a lot of the <clears throat> bad feelings around the ending. And it doesn't. It doesn't fix it per se. At the end of the day, you're still making a decision that doesn't have a ton of bearing on what you did before, but at least they add a lot more context and they address a lot of the things that people were complaining about. Like, for example, now your love interest will show up in the big flashback cutscene, and there's a thing where like they're sh- they're doing a memorial wall for Shepard and that kind of thing. So, uh, it's pr- it was pretty remarkable that <laughs> that EA got shamed into doing an extended cut. Uh, ending for that one yeah no and they added they added another choice to that end thing so so your original ending was you're at this machine i think it was like the crucible or something like that and you can just choose to destroy the reapers take control of them or you know merge all life and then the last like ending that they added was you can choose not to activate the machine at all but that's like that's like the extra bad ending, which always perplexed me. Like when I played it, I was like, "You choose not to to activate the machine, the universe essentially dies, and and everything is horrible." 
it's like but if you choose that one all life in the current cycle dies but the people in the next cycle ultimately come around and manage to beat the reapers which i found to be an interesting distant happy ending (laughs) right yeah yeah uh and, and then of course none of that carries over to andromeda no, I mean, Mass Effect Andromeda, though, don't even get me started on that game. But I found Mass Effect to be an interesting case where when it came out, I feel like everybody... So when it came out, it, this was 2007. It's the Xbox 360 is still a relatively new thing. And we are... I think everybody was feeling really ambitious. And everybody was feeling like, oh, man, we can do so much. There's so much power at our fingertips now online play is changing everything what if we do this massive three-part trilogy that tells a huge story over the course uh, over its entirety and we do something really truly special and i don't think that i don't think publishers would ever try something like that again would they uh no like the the what Bioware tried this whole big overarching story with all these choices across three games. No one's ever going to try that again. They're they're going to finish all of your choices and your story. Like Inquisition and Andromeda are pretty much the this is what's going to happen from now on, which is where plot threads and maybe characters may pop over to the next iteration, but otherwise the story is done in that one game. Like Inquisition. Though they kind of, they kind of did that with Witcher, right? I mean, a lot of the threads from Witcher one, or sorry, Witcher two, ultimately carried over to Witcher three, and but at the same time, Witcher three was very much a contained story, right? Correct. Yeah, I don't think it's like choices were brought over, but like there's still like narrative threads. Like people that played the early Witcher games would probably more likely go with like Triss than Yennefer or whatever. Uh, so it's like, and obviously characters carry over, but I don't think the choices like i think if you had a save file like i wouldn't care because it was like a next gen game so i don't think it was possible mm-hmm. uh no a witcher 2 was on the xbox 360 and the pc so if you played witcher 2 on the pc, on PC. yeah that would yeah down. and i i seem to recall that if you played witcher 2 on, on xbox 360 and then got the xbox one version the save could actually carry over because they did that oh. Because they did that with Dragon Age 2 to Dragon Age Inquisition. Um, if you played Dragon Age Original and Dragon Age 2 and made various choices, then those choices could carry over to Dragon Age Inquisition if everything played out right. And it was mostly like, here's what's happening in the world, and here's the story of that character, right. and that story will be referenced by other characters. And and some of those characters would pop up on the side as like supporting cast, like... A- if I remember, whatever your character was from the first one would appear as a side character briefly in Dragon Age Two, uh, or maybe that was maybe that was Dragon Age Two's lead character over and into Dragon Age Inquisition. Either way, that that seems to be the the like way forward. Instead of this sort of trying to build a three arc thing over uh, across three games, you're building one story in the same world and maybe some of those choices will be reflected but uh yeah i i I think bioware realized they pulled off 
they tried to pull off more than they actually could. Like you were saying, like everyone got ambitious. And when they got to the end, they were like, yeah, there's no way we can do this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because at the end of the day, the changes are going to be too big, right? I mean, at the end of the original Mass Effect, you decide whether essentially the Federation government dies and a human government comes in, takes in for them, which is the decision I chose, actually. Humans basically end up taking over the galactic government or, or vice versa, right? How can you meaningfully change Mass Effect 2 to such an extent, right? Because you are in danger of effectively creating two games. And if you let those choices get out of control, then you're in danger of having to create like four games for Mass Effect 3. Yeah, and, and I think Telltale, even on a smaller scale, has shown us that at, at some point to make these sort of uh, episodic choice-based games work, you kind of have to, at points, sort of funnel the player... Like, it widens out for a bit, and then it funnels back to a specific point. Like, if you play the Telltale, like, one Telltale game over and over again, you'll start to see that, oh, these choices, like, look like they mattered, but they don't really matter. Like, if I have this character versus this character, uh, you know, an hour down the line, eventually that character is going to die either way, or they'll make the same choice when it comes time. So, like... And that's on a small scale, so trying to do it on a large scale like Bioware was with Mass Effect is uh, damn near impossible. And then, I I think I've said this before, I played Fallout New Vegas back in the day, and I did the guides for it, uh, for 1UP, and... Fallout, and that always completely ruined my perspective on the game because I saw the seams, I suppose, because I kept going back and reloading with every decision that I ultimately made, and it felt less organic to me because I saw how everything ultimately came together at the Battle of the Hoover Dam. <laughs> right. right. Yep. And it was interesting to see how certain quests would be the flip side if you ultimately went with Caesar's Legion versus the NCR. But I also saw a ton of quests that ended up overlapping. <laughs> and so it it all started to feel very mechanical to me, especially once you got to the Hoover Dam, because ultimately the battle at the Hoover Dam would be roughly the same. You're fighting lots of enemies, and there's a big three-way battle and everything, but it just depended on who was the final boss. Would you be fighting the giant legionnaire guy, or would you be fighting a whole bunch of soldiers from the New California Republic and the general? And... Who would who would be sidling up at the end? Like, how would you be dealing with Mister House at the end? And that was pretty much that, right? It it on it it weirdly felt like a bit of a letdown. But then, one thing that I like about what they do, and I think they do this kind of in Witcher Three as well, is after the game you see a series of cutscenes, or you see a series of still shots explaining, like showing where all the different factions and interests ultimately ended up and how your changes, your decisions affected them and how the world is looking at that moment. And to me, that was actually more meaningful. It, it's just kind of the same in Witcher 3, Katie. Like One of the reasons I wanted to make sure that I kind of touched on all of the different quests that would affect the ending was because if you don't, if you just leave certain quests alone then bad things seem to happen in the ending. For example, like there's the assassination of the, the crazy king who is uh, tormenting mages. 
And if you don't do that, he will win. He'll just go and conquer a new area. And then he'll keep burning and freaking murdering all of the mages and elves and all of that. I don't want that. Come on. No, yeah. I I got an okay ending. I didn't get my ideal ending because I was like, I'm just going to do what I do. Uh, apparently, I messed up somewhere along the way. Um, so... I like I I sided with Yennefer the whole time because like I I just hmm. I liked her better. Uh, like Trissa seems cool, whatever. Like I get why people would prefer Triss. Uh, but with the whole Siri thing, like she can die in that final, or she just like kind of disappears and you yeah. assume she dies. I didn't want her to die. Yeah, I like, wanted like her to stay thing. alive. Uh, but like the the ending after that, uh, where you guys have been like hanging out for a while, like chilling, and then. Siri, like, there's, like, kind of, like, these, like, options for Siri to either, one, go off and become a witcher, basically, which is the ending I wanted, and I did not get that ending. I got the one where she becomes, like, queen of... The emperor. She becomes the the new emperor, emperor. yeah. And Mm -hmm. I don't... I I got that, and I was like, that doesn't seem like her. I was kind of bummed by it, but, I mean, I'm not gonna, like, go and replay or, like, load old saves and, like, figure out where I went wrong, but... Yeah, like... The, like, having Siri die, or, like, if you, like, slept with both Triss and Yennefer, and just ending up alone, like, that sounds like such a sad ending for Geralt, like, uh, but, I don't know, it, it's, I think Witcher 3 has not amazing endings, honestly, except for the Siri one, where, like, I like how you're kind of walking with her, and just hanging out, and going on a hunt, and it's, like, this very, like, relaxed ending compared to, like, the actual final quest where you're like doing all these fights and you're walking through portals and like having this like giant epic battle against the hunt. Uh, so I, I like how, cause I, that's like the core of the story, right? Is like Geralt and Siri. And if Siri lives, you have this very sweet kind of finale with her, whether the outcome is she becomes emperor or witcher or whatever. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I honestly, I feel like most RPGs don't have amazing endings in my experience, at least mm. the ones I've played. Like, that I I always feel like I'm disappointed by them in some way, especially the ones with like old like different endings. I feel like I always luck out and get the worst one or something. I uh, yeah. I like the ending to Wisher Three, but it wasn't as good. I I think Blood of Wine was the better overall ending. Like yeah, Blood of Wine ended. Still haven't finished Blood and Wine, but <laughs> well, Blood and Wine. Hearts of Stone also is a really good. I think Hearts of Stone is like has a better campaign than the main campaign yes. in Witcher 3. It's, like, tight 10 hours. It's funny. It's scary. It, like, does these really weird things narratively. It's, like, a haunted house you explore. Like, it changes, like, the style to be, like, more like an oil painting at some point. It's just, like, really cool and different. And I feel like the villain is way more compelling than just, like, the hunt. You know? Like, they're just, like, we're scary. We're kind of like the enemies in Lord of the Rings. Like, the night wraiths or whatever i don't remember what they're called yeah uh hearts of stone is definitely the better campaign and overall told story i liked blood and wine as an ending for Geralt because the Mm. it's in the same way that i was talking about mass effect 3 in that you sort of get the feeling that as you're playing it you're like dude you've done a lot like here's your here's your reward here's a vineyard everyone here thinks you're a hero as opposed to back home where everyone, like, you're doing the good fight and everyone still hates you. And then I won't 
talk about the end since you haven't finished it, but it like it feels like a good job, dude. Like an, an, yeah, like an end, like a goodbye type thing. Right, a goodbye yeah. to Geralt. Like you've done all you can. Uh, we've done all we can with you. Like it feels like CD Projekt Red is saying that. And good job, peace out. And it, it, I think that feels great. Uh, and that was like the the main thrust of my review when I reviewed it. So I, I think Hearts of Stone is the better overall campaign. I really liked the Wild Hunt, but yeah, the the Wild Hunt is very much sort of a, a I called him medieval Darth Vader, like the main guy, yeah. and that's pretty much where there's yeah. Force of Nature villain, and then Blood and Wine is the like, yeah, this is this is the end, and it feels like a good end, especially if you've played through all of them. Yeah, like I I, I still want to go back and play all the Witchers, but I'm like I have this thing where I just kind of. The Witcher 3 is my in-between game, and I found- Like, last year, I finally beat the main campaign after, like, two years of, like, plugging away at it. And I played Hearts of Stone, which is, like, ten hours. Uh, and I I started Blood and Wine, and then I got distracted, and I want to go back and finish Blood and Wine. I don't think, like, the story of that really compelled me that much, just, like, vampires and stuff. But the area is super pretty. It's, like, super lush and green and, like, very different from Velen and everywhere else. But, Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, like, it's a weird thing where- I almost feel like endings in RPGs like don't really matter. Like I, I understand people are pissed off about three, especially because choices drive that game. But in like other games where it's just like there's kind of like a choice or a pivot at the end, it's kind of like I feel like it's more about the journey in like a corny way. You know, it's like I don't really, yeah, if the ending's lackluster, but if I had fun with the rest of the game, who cares? Like whatever. Plus, I, I think it's hard to stick the landing with an RPG. Oh yeah. Uh, for the most part, I mean. Especially in a game, well, you mentioned that it's all about the journey in certain games. And I think that is super true for a game like Skyrim or Fallout 4, where the ending is almost immaterial. It's kind of a a matter of when you decide you're kind of done with it. Yeah. I mean, if you play all the way through Fallout 4 and you get to the actual ending, you're probably going to be kind of disappointed by it because it really railroads you into choosing between one of the three factions and then, okay, well, if you choose one faction, you got to kill the other two. Sorry. <laughs> and that's a super drag because it takes away so much of your agency and so much about a good role-playing game is either giving you a lot of agency or telling a really good story. And Fallout 4 somehow manages to do neither <laughs> by the end, which is, uh, I was disappointed by that. But in terms of a game that feels like a really tight, nicely told story that also gives you agency. I mean, you need to look no further than Chrono Trigger, a game where you can decide whether or not the main character ultimately lives to the end of the game. A common thread, by the way, in a lot of RPG endings is, did the main character survive, essentially? Uh, Dragon Age Origins is a good example of that, where you can either choose... Uh, to save one of the main villains and have him sacrifice himself, you can sacrifice yourself. You can make a deal with Morrigan and have let her have basically have the Antichrist in exchange for you surviving, and then she takes away the baby and you don't know what's going on with that thing. Or uh, you can have Alistair, who is kind of your right-hand man and potential love interest, go kill himself. Like th- Those are one of your options. And so... It's a matter of, so do you want to die or do you want to let somebody else die for you? And that kind of thing. But, but Chrono Trigger is really interesting just because the actually the endings aren't that complex. It's a lot of who did you meet? 
what order did you decide to do things? Did you decide to do the various side quests? But it results in a lot of different and kind of interesting feelings to the ultimate conclusions. And I think that is a really good example of how you can kind of nail the ending and make it feel like a much more kind of coherent story if you if you kind of catch my drift. Also, I wanted to mention that Persona 4, it's so easy mm. to get bad endings in that game. Or like yes. if you're just not paying attention, if you're not like really taking into account like the rain and everything, you can get like a bad ending relatively like easily. And there's like even like a pre-bad ending that's like comes with like a narrative choice of not wanting like hunt down like the real suspect or whatever. Yeah. And then it's like the the lackluster ending of like you on a train because I got this ending and I like had to boot up an old save. I was like, thank God, like I have backup saves and I was thinking while playing this. But yeah, like you just like cruise on a train and you go home while like nothing's resolved and it's like I wonder how oh the fog never went away. That's odd. Yeah, it's it's like it's such a funny bad ending because it's just so lackluster. It's like you see, and then you get like a teaser at the end, like oh you messed up here. That wasn't the real suspect or whatever. Uh, Uh, How much? How much of this is is sort of the change in online and growing discussion? in that we can share all of these extra endings. Cause I'm sure there are a number of games I probably played back in the day before like all this forums and, and Twitter and all this became more uh, important where I would be sitting there and I'd probably gotten maybe an average ending or the bad ending. And I would just be like, Oh, well that's it. That was a, that was the ending. And then I moved on unless I had friends who were also playing it. But most of the time, like back in high school and college, like we'd be playing together. So like when we would get an ending, we would just be like, Oh, that's our ending. And we're done. And we would never know that. Like, unless a game like said on the back, like multiple endings, we would never know. Well, like at the end of like near Tomita's like first route or like playthrough A, there's like a disclosure from Square Enix telling you to keep playing because they they were probably worried people would just stop there. You know, they're like, no, keep playing. Like, just start again. Trust us. Like, like they don't like outright spoil anything. They're not like, oh, you're playing as a different character. It's more like, just keep playing. Trust us. Like, thank you for playing at least this first route. Uh, which I think is kind of funny that. Because I don't know if the Japanese version has that. I want, I'm actually really curious if it does. Uh, I imagine it wouldn't. Like, maybe American players are just stupid or Western players. Um, <laughs> but also, I wanted to mention, like, Persona 5 has... If you don't finish a dungeon in time, like, with, by, like, the schedule or whatever, the bad ending you get for that spoils, like, a, a major moment in, like, the later game, which I think is really weird. And I don't know, mm. like why it does that it never happened to me because they're like that's what you deserve that's what you deserve it's such like a big moment in the late game but like if you just mess up in the early like you don't know the flow of like your schedule yet you just kind of get spoiled for that and that's kind of a bummer in my opinion and also like that game's really is a lot better than four and three are at like telegraphing like yo you don't want to choose the option because you're gonna get a bad ending from it like there's a big warning that flashes uh so that's better and like i almost i wonder if golden had that because i never never played through all of golden i only started it uh but i wonder if the endings are like more better telegraphed at like being bad endings like you don't want to choose this trust us like just keep go on this path like you'll get the good ending and 
yeah. I, I just remembered. I just remembered that in Super Robot Wars Alpha Three, uh, which is a mecha strategy game of, that some people might be familiar with. Uh, so there, the whole idea, if you're not familiar with it, is that all of the mechs from all the different anime are coming together into one game. And one of in, in Alpha Three, one of the notable ones is Ideon, which was a Super series Runway from Ideon. the yeah Space Runaway Ideon, which came out in the early '80s, I believe, from uh, Yoshimo uh, from Tomino, who also did Gundam, and he is known for his super downer endings. And uh, notably, in the movie, which kind of wrapped up the entire series, uh, he blows up the universe. Like, he actually, I believe, ends the universe. And a lot of people have speculated that the universe then is reformed and becomes the Gundam universe. But the reason I mention this is that in Alpha 3, if you power up Ideon too much, you can blow up the universe. And that's one of the bad endings in that game. <laughs> so wow. you can actually end the universe. That's amazing. Yeah, no, wow, it's really that's... great. Uh, I... I strongly recommend that you do that at least once if you play uh, Super <laughs> Robot Wars Alpha 3. Because the whole point is that he keeps getting hit and he gets more and more powerful to the point where he gets map-destroying weapons. But if you let it go too far, well, good GG, that's the end of the game. So here's a kind of a question for the group. Uh, how do you choose your ending? Do you always go for the best ending are you more into heavy role playing or would you rather have kind of a more straightforward conclusion where you don't necessarily have to choose like the game is set in stone from beginning to end? Uh, or would you prefer to be surprised? I'd be, I'm kind of curious to hear what you guys have to say on this. Uh, Katie. I kind of f- go with my gut. Like I kind of, in my head, I'm like, I don't like looking up things before I do them. Like, I don't like following walkthroughs or anything, so I just kind of try to wing it, and if I messed up somewhere, maybe I'd, like, go back. Because I try to keep backup saves, so if I do mess up big time, I can just, like, go back. Uh, So, I kind of go with my gut. Uh, Like I said, like, I was disappointed in my choice for The Witcher 3 ending, and I still don't quite... I think I looked up after, I was like, how did I mess up? Like, I wanted her to, like, go off and be a Witcher. Like, in my head, that seemed what it was, like, leaning towards, but I messed up in, like, some dialogue choice along the way. Because uh, I was, like, mean to her dad and stuff. Like, I, I feel like I did everything right. And then I messed up still, somehow. Because uh, there's a point where he's like, offers to pay Geralt for finding her. And you can, like, refuse the money. And I did that, and I thought that was, like, a good thing to do. I was like, you're not paying me. Like, she's basically my daughter, not yours. Uh, but, yeah, I have no idea where else I messed up. Like, I, it must have been something. Uh, but, yeah, I just, I go with my gut. I... Like, I don't do, like, heavy roleplaying, like, what would the character do? It's more like, what would my version of this character do, in a way? Like, for, like, this isn't an RPG, but when I played Wolf Among Us, like, when I was playing, I feel like that was the best Telltale game at, like, sculpting a character through choices. Like, there's so many different versions of Bigsby you can go in. And my version was, like, he would never talk, and he would always smoke. Like, if there's an option to smoke, <laughs> I would just choose that and just do silence. <laughs> So he's, like, a very stern version of Bigsby, but there's, like, a sarcastic version, or there's, like, an angry... Like, there's all these different... I feel like that game is really good at, like, letting the player feel like they were making this character as the story went along. So my version was just, like, 
there's like this I remember this one moment at like one of the ends of what an episode where like all of these characters like pop up and it's like this big reveal and one of the options you could do is just light a cigarette so I did that and that's the end of the episode and it's like amazing it's it's so funny uh <laughs> But yeah, like I, I, I think that's like my approach to any game that has like that's very heavily choice driven is I just like what do I want this character to do? Rather than like, okay, deep in the lore, what would this character actually do in this situation? Yeah, um so I I tend to if it's a role playing game where you create a character and you have choices and, and this is probably all a fallout mentally from my first sort of real CRPG was Knights of the Old Republic on Xbox. And in that, I, I like this whole gray thing didn't work for me. So I played through an entire light side game and then I would play through an entire dark side game and I wouldn't diverge. So when I played future Bioware games, like that's how I played. Like we're upstanding Commander Shepard or we are Kill 'em All Shepard. And that's how we go. And the ending for me, would always feed into that, well, what would this character do? Uh, whereas with Witcher 3, Geralt felt like a character, yeah. like, already, and I was just sort of picking, like, which nuance I was going to to go with. Now, uh, I almost had the same... In mine, she actually became a Witcher, but I thought she should have been the Empress, just because, like, when I looked it up, like over i was like oh there's no there's no emperor that would be bad if there is no emperor so like like i i think she would be better as a witcher yes but so there's a reason i'm reluctant to make her a witcher and that's oh while it's not really conveyed through Geralt, witchers don't have emotions and i think that would be kind of sad to and the whole thing with like the reason that there are no more witchers or that they're not really making more witchers is first of all it's a terrifying and horrible process that like kind of is brutal and can kill people. But not only that, but it sucks away all of your emotions. And I was just like, oh man, do I want to do that to her? She seems pretty cool. <laughs> Maybe it would be better to have somebody who's kind-hearted and awesome r- running the empire. But I mean, she was already being trained and whatnot and like Yeah. I feel like when I look at Geralt, he doesn't, like, even though he technically doesn't have emotions or whatever, I feel like he still has, like, feelings. Like, he cares a lot for Siri. He sees her as, like, his mm. own daughter. Uh, and he cares for his friends and everything. I feel, and it, like, like what Mike was saying, where it's, like, different, what nuance. Like, I always went with, like, sarcastic Geralt. So, like, he was just, like, very, like, snarky and stuff and, like, and demanding payment and everything. And I kind of, like, love that because it shows more than just, like, the very, like, boring, like, ser- self-serious type of protagonist that we see in so many RPGs, or Western RPGs in particular. Uh, so it's, like, a nice change. Like, he he has a personality even devo- being devoid of, like, emotions, per se. Uh, but I don't know. Like, I feel like Siri, like, she would want to be a witcher. That was kind of what I was saying. Like, mm. that's, like, kind of her life's purpose in a way. Uh, like Empress did not seem like something she was really enthused about. I, like from what I remember about that cutscene, well, it seemed like something that was just like, "Well, I guess I'm doing this." Yeah, which I, I agree. She felt like she wanted to be a witcher. Like even from the very beginning, when she's like a little kid and they're training yeah. her, like all she wants to do is do this witcher thing. But like 
there are bigger responsibilities, which I think is sort of a running uh, thing. Which is it. It, it impresses upon you throughout the entire game that being a witcher is a terrible life. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, one of the main characters, one of the other witchers, I forget his name, but he's really pissed off because his dad was an awful drunk and his dad traded him away to become a witcher against his will. And his entire life is fighting monsters for money, being a vagabond, being a wanderer. And it stinks. It's a bad life that's probably going to come to a bad end. I mean... There's one ending where there's one quest ending where you discover a witcher who was captured and tortured and possibly taken over by a demon that you actually have to end up killing. Uh, at one point, you run into a witcher that decides to become a merchant. He's, he's like, screw all this. Oh, my God, I hate being a witcher. It, it is impressed upon you that being a witcher is kind of bad. So it's like. Yeah, she wants to be a witcher now, but that's like youthful naivete, right? Once she's on the other side of the fence, maybe not yeah. so much. So yeah. I don't know. I don't like. I was wondering, like, in my in my head, I was like, well, she has like elder blood and these like magical powers that other witchers don't have. So I was wondering if that would like make her situation different in some way, you know? Hmm. But <laughs> in terms of what I'm always looking for in an ending, I guess it varies from game to game. I think in a game like Chrono Trigger, I was kind of going for the ending that I guess judged to be the happiest. So I wanted Chrono um, to be in there. I tried to do all of the side quests if possible. I tried to resolve everything. And so many of these games are like, you will get the good ending if you do all of the side quests. So get cracking. <laughs> and it's like, okay, yeah, cool. Uh, I will try and do that. Or I will try to avoid, I hate having people die. I will go out of my way to make sure that people that I that people I like don't die. Um, uh, so I tend to get extremely paranoid about making the wrong decision in that regard. And but oh, but in other games like see in Fallout Four, and I've talked about this in the past. There's a DLC called Far Harbor, and I actually ended up doing some pretty hardcore role playing in that one. Because I looked at the situation, which is you have this town and the townsfolk are having to deal with these religious fanatics uh, who worship radiation. And meanwhile, there are also this co- there's also this colony of robots. And you have to figure out what the entire story is. And ultimately, you can make a variety of different decisions. Uh, you can have the town make peace with the religious fanatics. Uh, you can kind of you can kill the religious fanatics. You can let the town be overwhelmed by the thing, etc., uh, etc., etc., etc. And my ultimate decision was to kill the religious fanatics <laughs> because I did not like them in Fallout Four. Anyway, I, I did not like them in the main quest. I found them kind of weird and creepy. Um. I have a thing. I, I'm not a big fan of religious fanatics in general, and my feeling was that these these crazy people who worshipped the atom and everything, cool as they were, probably were a plague on the on the wasteland, and were going to eventually kill the town regardless, even if you let them stay, even if you like had them make peace. So better to deal with them now, and so I had them. Uh, I, I tricked them into setting off the nuclear bombs in the submarine where they lived, and, and that was pretty fun. 
<laughs> so not an ending per se, but I heavily engineered that ending because I was like, well, okay, so this character screwed everybody, so they have to die. That's like my justice right here. And these religious fanatics, screw them, they're going to die. And I got heavily chastised by the the head of the town. Like, you're a bad person for killing <laughs> off these people. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Screw you. <laughs> But I liked I liked having a lot of agency in that regard. I liked being able to kind of pick and choose a lot of elements as opposed to being like, no, no, either you do this or you do this. You cannot do a la carte. You cannot have the a la carte ending. No, yeah, there's there's one ending I want to point out from a game mm. that has nothing to do with like choices per se, but also I feel like in retrospect seems really stupid. But, like, Kingdom Hearts 2 has a very good ending that, like, ties up everything, no loose ends. It's, like, this very impactful, emotional ending for all these characters. Like, they're all reunited for the first time over the series of these games and spinoffs and everything. And, like, there's, like, a really good remix of, like, the main song that plays. And, yeah, like, just, like, that, it, like, even as I, like, don't really like Kingdom Hearts 2 that much, I feel like that ending for the, like, that story is really, really good. And then they ruined it because they just kept making yeah. games for some reason. And it's just like in <laughs> retrospect, like what was even the point of having this nice ending that like feels like it closes the book on like this, these people and these characters, but they just kept going for some reason. And now three's happening. So They did that to God of War. I still, I know they had to make sequels, but my God, the first game was fine. Yes. The it, first the, game. The first game. This is not RPG related, but it still bugs me to this day. They closed they the the original game had a complete arc. It was a complete redemption arc for Kratos. And it ends with him sitting on the throne as the new god of war and you see little cutscenes and it's like and Kratos watched over the warriors of various nations and you see like a shot of D-Day and everything for all time. And I'm like Great. Okay, that's a nice ending. Then God of War 2 comes out. Yeah, it's like, it keeps going. <laughs> and he kills everybody. He They completely throw away the redemption arc. And then they try to bring the redemption arc back a little bit in God of War 3. But at this point, I'm just like, you ruined it. You completely ruined everything. What have you done? If anything, they should have had a different character other than Kratos. But, eh. Yeah, because... Anyway, I'm still, I'm still mad about that one. Yeah, it's like, be- sometimes... Oh, go ahead. Maybe, like, leave it a little more open-ended if you're going... To, or, like, if you're going to... Yeah close it out then leave well enough alone like i would be kind of mad if they brought Geralt back in another witcher it's like okay his arc is finished for god's sake yeah that's what i was hoping about with siri becoming a witcher because i was like if there's a four it'd be siri that's why i want it that's why i want her oh there you go like witcher four with siri but could you imagine that witcher four if you let siri become a witcher now you're gonna be with siri if you didn't let her become a witcher, you're a Gennaro character. I know they yeah. could they could never do that because it would be so complicated trying to like weave these two different storylines. But it would be kind of funny, right? Everybody goes back to Witcher three, going, "Oh God damn it! I need to make us. I need to make Siri a witcher." And there's like a reference to cyberpunk in Witcher three in like the late yes, game, like a very subtle one. But it, like suggesting I re- like that a, they're in the same universe. Yeah, which is like a funny because like Siri like hops through time and whatnot, and there's like this like very offhanded mention of like a cyberpunk world basically and i was like that's really cool i didn't know that was gonna be referenced in this uh but yeah i don't know i that's i think in my head that's kind of why i wanted siri to become a witcher because i was like well if witcher 4 happens 
be be Siri and it'd be a new trilogy. But also, it's like these are based off books, and I don't know if they. I've never read the books. I don't know if they like, continue with Siri. I have no idea how those books even play out. So uh, and, it might not and be the books great. are kind of uh, ambiguous. Uh, Geralt gets sort of. I think it's a pitchfork or something like that. Essentially, he gets stabbed, and then they just sort of end it. But there was a vision that Siri had that sort of alluded to Geralt dying, but they never like really, because I, I, I don't think that the, I, I don't want to try to mangle the poor gentleman's name, but he doesn't seem like the happiest fellow. So, so I get the feeling like he was like, yeah, no, the, he's dead. That's like, I'm done. <laughs> I don't need to do anymore. And so he's dead, but it, it's sort of like open. I have not read, the there was one novel after that which was like season of storms or something like that i have not read that one so i don't know if they do anything more after that i got an ending in the automata in the first five minutes if you (laughs) die if you die in the opening sequence where you're running through and you're fighting everybody oh there's no save point yeah yeah, there's no save point what happens is it just you see it it fast forwards through the credits almost as if somebody was watching it on a vcr and then it basically says and everybody had lived happily ever after (laughs) and i was like huh okay and then i think that was ending g or something like that and that was on my that was on my on my list from uh from then from that point on but yeah so i i feel like man i feel like we only kind of scratched the surface on all the kind of interesting ways that rpg endings have been handled over the years i like i didn't even get a chance to talk about kind of what they were doing in the 90s where uh both jrpgs and crpgs were getting a lot more ambitious with the way that they were handling endings and that kind of thing and i didn't even get to talk about valkyrie profile though i've talked about the ending in that game like a hundred times but do you have endings that you think were handled especially well or do you have endings that you think were handled especially poorly send us an email at usgamer at usgamer.net or leave a comment in the show notes and we will read it in the next episode All right, last week we had Ben Ringer or Ben Limberg on from the Ringer Ben Ringer. And he, we talked about Panzer Dragoon Saga's uh, retrospective. It was its 20th anniversary and lots of people were popping in to talk about it. Uh, Valenska says, uh, I've always read the ending pessimistically. I don't want to spoil since the fourth wall breaking stuff is genuinely cool and a lot subtler than what other games have done. Uh, so <laughs> it's funny that we were talking about endings in this entire game. Uh, there's some discussion about where essentially a Panzer Dragoon Saga breaks the fourth wall and is essentially saying, turn off the game and erase this character from history. It's actually kind of interesting in that regard. But uh, they say, Panzer Dragoon Saga is one of my favorite games. The peerless, strange art direction, the soaring future folk soundtrack, the subtlety of storytelling and gradual character growth, the shooter-inspired battle system that is players constantly moving... It all remains unique and in many ways far ahead of most contemporary games. That is borderline inaccessible to the average person is a tragedy. I never owned a Sega Saturn, sadly. Uh, did you ever own one, Mike? Yes, I did. I owned a Sega Saturn for X-Men uh, versus Street Fighter. So it had the, the... No kidding. Yeah, no, I had a Sega Saturn. I was, I, I've had 
pretty much every console. There, I, there may be a couple I missed, but I had an Atari Lynx. I had a TurboGrafx-16, a Turbo Express, a Sega Saturn. You had all of the stuff. Oh my gosh! Yeah, no, I had I had most. My my first console was the NES, but I didn't really have it. It was uh, like my dad's. My first actual console was the Super Nintendo. No, Genesis. Wow, I'm sorry, Genesis. I, I apologize. I just remember. I just remember making fun of the Saturn because it felt like. Because by the end of its life cycle, they were trying to basically give them away because they were offering three free games or something with them. Yeah, <laughs> they were like a yep. hundred bucks. They were super cheap. Oh my gosh! Did you ever even see a Saturn in the wild, Katie? No, I had a Genesis when I was like a little little kid, like a toddler. Like there's like cute old pictures of me watching like, my mom and her roommates play like Sonic and stuff. But like PlayStation was like my first console I was like aware of and actually like played like actively. Uh, so yeah, I'm a baby. <laughs> it's it's kind of like the Sega Master System, where I I'm aware that it existed and I knew that people owned it, but I never saw it in stores, and it might as well have been a myth to me. But uh, th- this is kind of for you, Mike. Uh, Helvetica scenario. We were talking about the inaccessibility of Panzer Dragoon Saga and the fact that the source code for that game was apparently lost, and Helvetica scenario was po- was saying that. It's a damaging misconception that the game is forever lost to time because the source code is gone. And this is wrong due to the fact that you don't necessarily need it to port remaster the game to new hardware. For example, Bluepoint Games does their remasters without source code. They just use a retail copy of the game and reverse engineer it to run on new platforms. They do this to avoid what happened with the botched Silent Hill HD collection where the source code was actually unfinished code that contained bugs. And there was actually a little bit of an argument in the comments as to whether this is actually a thing that could happen and i was wondering if you could weigh in on that that's a that's a very good question i mean blue point is is fairly good at at doing remakes and remasters but even then like the undertaking of of that for the game it is, I, I just don't think anyone would do it. I think it's possible. I certainly think it, it is definitely possible, uh, especially because I don't remember anything in the game that requires a, a, a certain like tight timing. Because a lot of the problem with some of these platformer remakes and are, are like say like a remake of a fighting game or something is there's a certain amount of timing that you need to carry across that people are used to like like nintendo could remake smash brothers melee right now but i don't think the smash melee community would be happy with it uh because there'd be like like a frame pacing that would be slightly off or something weird and they tried to fix they tried to remake i mean they tried to fix super street fighter 2 turbo which a lot of people say is great but also broken in some ways and they didn't fix the broken elements and it's like it's damned if you do or damned if you don't fix the broken elements people will complain if you if you don't fix the broken elements people will complain that the broken elements were never fixed what do you do yeah and, and so like in a in a game like like panzer I, I i don't at least that particular version the one that's not a shooter uh i don't really necessarily see it as something that requires that hard hard like line sticking to a specific frame or timing or something like that so i i think it's definitely doable 
but no one's going to spend that money to do it. Yeah, it's like a super niche game, yeah. Okay, this is how I would pitch it to Sega. Dear Sega, you are desperately in need of new IPs. Panzer Dragoon is one of your IPs. It is beloved in many quarters. If you say that Panzer Dragoon is coming back and you're starting with a remake of Panzer Dragoon Saga, you will instantaneously get a ton of goodwill and lots of good hype across a lot of different sites. And in that regard, in this extremely crowded market, being able to put a game front and center and get a certain degree of hype going is how you will sell copies. And you and I would honestly use Nier Automata as a good example of a game that was going to be probably second tier at best and ultimately took off in a huge way because of all of the hype from different mainstream sites reporting on it all the time, the genuine goodwill coming from the community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I actually, and then they could use that as a springboard to make more Panzer Dragoon games, hopefully, which are uh, faithful to the actual series. And voila, you have a franchise and people love you for it as long as you don't screw it up. Don't screw it up, Sega. They're gonna screw it up. Dang it! <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that I've gone through this entire arc, like this entire hypothetical arc. But anyway, that's I what mean, it, I'm my still pitch would be. I'm waiting on Sega to boot up a new Jet Set Radio. I feel like now is the time for it. Like mm. Splatoon's a huge hit, and that mm. has a similar style, Put on Switch. coolness. Make a new Jet Set Radio. Make it fun. Bring back Chibo Mato. Do like another song or two. Like just. I'm waiting for them to do Shining. I'm waiting for them to do Fantasy Star and Shining Force. Right, (laughs) man. Sega has so many great properties that they're just like, no, no, we're not doing anything interesting with these. Sorry. (laughs) Ah, so annoying. And finally, Doctor Oxshan says, "This is a bittersweet episode for me. On one hand, Panzer Dragoon Saga is one of my all-time favorite games, and I have so many fond memories of it. The world, the interesting characters, the amazing battle system. I think it's one of the best games Sega has ever put out." The hard part of this was the reminder that at one time I had a launch copy but ended up selling it. Oh no, you poor thing. Oh no. I was a poor college student at the time and one month I literally had to choose between paying tuition and buying groceries. So when a friend offered me $150, just wasn't in a place to turn it down. In retrospect, I know what I I did what I had to do and that was the right decision, but it still hurts. And that friend probably turned around and sold it for way more than 150. Oh yeah. Wow. I still got my launch copy of Valkyrie Profiles sitting on my desk, and that game goes for at least a couple hundred dollars. It's uh, as the games that can readily be found on downloadable networks like PSN and that kind of thing, or Steam, are uh, they will go for quite a lot ultimately on Amazon and that kind of thing, which is. Uh, on the one hand, I'm like, oh, I could use some extra money. But on the other hand, I'm like, well, this is one of my favorite games of all time. And I have an original copy. There's no way in hell I'm ever selling this. So there it goes. Okay, so if you want to contribute, yeah, just send an email at usgamer at usgamer.net or leave a comment in the show notes and we may read your thoughts on the show. Okay, Axe the Blood God is a US Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Check me out on Twitter at the underscore catbot, Katie at Katie. that's spelled Y-U-M-E-C-A-T-Y, and Mike is at Automatic Zen. And hey, you guys are on another podcast. Do you want to sell the good folks listening to this podcast on that podcast? 
So uh, we are a part of U.S. Gamer's flagship tentpole marquee podcast, the U.S. Gamer Podcast, and uh, it's it's frankly I I I I don't want to like cast aspersions, but I think it might be the best podcast ever put together by any person, by any team ever. I mean, it's it's hosted by myself, so that's excellent. It has Nadia and Katie who have spicy and erudite takes all the time. And then it's edited by the wonderful Kat Bailey. I don't know where she is right now, but she does amazing work on the show. What? So, uh, yeah, US Gamer Podcast. We uh, come out every Wednesday, and we hope you enjoy it. And if you do, like and subscribe. We'll always be here for you. Yeah, subscribe, rate, and review us over on the show and also of course go and check out the main site we got a bunch of cool stuff going up as usual so mike took a look at for honor a year later uh katie took a look at the backlash behind the miramar map on PUBG, um and we got a whole bunch of other things on the site as well i also talked at some length about why why i like monster hunter world but at the same time like I really like Monster Hunter World a lot, but I might have to quit it soon. <laughs> so uh, maybe I'll have some thoughts, additional thoughts on that. But uh, yeah, I talked a little bit about what they do with the, the, the monster encounters and why that's really interesting. And oh, and Katie also did her Inside Yakuza 6's in-depth localization. You should check that out as well. Lots of great stuff on the site as usual. Okay. Uh, for Katie, Mike, and myself, we'll be back next week. And until then, happy adventuring. Happy adventuring.